I actually find it easier to do an endoscopic brain surgery than it would be to sit and meditate for that long. I find it actually very hard at times to sit and really watch the thoughts and feelings and take the, the, the tumbling, tumultuous ride of this thought and this thought and this thought and this thought and to see you know, that's actually a, can, can be a very uh, difficult experience more than I think when I have sort of an endoscopic or I'm doing some sort of cranial surgery, I've sort of 100% focus. There's a there's this mechanical problem solving laser-like focus down on a single problem that can uh, draws all my attention. It can do so for hours. It's almost as if it's a nice distraction from the continuous train of thought that would otherwise be churning around in my head if I didn't have something to focus my energy towards. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. So Keith and I have long considered doing an episode on meditation. What held us back was our goal, as it is with every one of these episodes, to answer two questions. How would the episode actually benefit you, all the physicians and medical professionals in our audience? And how would we avoid simply rehashing a well-worn topic already explored elsewhere? So we tabled it until just recently when we came across today's guest. Dr. Patrick Codd earned his medical degree in the Harvard Medical School MIT Health and Science Technology Program. He then went on to complete his residency in neurosurgery at Mass General and Harvard Medical School. Patrick then served as the director of the North Neurosurgical Service at Mass General and an instructor in surgery at Harvard Medical School before joining the neurosurgery staff at Duke University Medical Center, which is where we find him today. So not only is Patrick a solidly credentialed neurosurgeon at a world-class institution, he's also, get ready for this, an ordained Buddhist priest. Not a combination you find every day, but just the kind of person we knew we had to invite on the program. We'll explore Patrick's uncommon path and his unique perspective on meditation. After all, the brain isn't just a focal point for Patrick's meditative practice. It's also something he actually operates on every week. We'll learn how meditation initially helped him manage the daily encounters with stress and patient suffering experienced as a resident. Then we'll go on to see how a busy neurosurgeon fits meditation into his daily workflow and how it's become a critical element of his life and practice. Maybe you already have a meditation routine. Maybe you've tried it and found little benefit. Or maybe you're still just highly skeptical of the whole thing. Wherever you're coming from, we think you're going to find this episode pretty interesting. So with that said, let's get started. Patrick, welcome to the show. We are really excited to talk about this. This is a little bit unusual, but we've been really looking forward to this. Well, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Let's start it out here. Um, where do we find you today in your career? And give us a little idea of your clinical interests. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, on faculty at Duke University. Um, my clinical practice is uh, really centered around endoscopic and minimally invasive cranial surgery. So most of my practice is actually doing endoscopic surgery around the skull base uh, and tumors around the base of the brain, uh, kind of taking out these tumors through minimally invasive approaches, and then also taking out tumors within the brain itself through very small access and using specialized instrumentation, try to minimize the impact it has on the patient's life. So I, that's, uh, I do almost exclusively neuro-oncology work here at Duke. Uh, the other hat I wear is actually as a um, uh, principal investigator and director of what we call our Brain Tool Laboratory, which is a robotics laboratory and minimally invasive device development lab over in the engineering school on the Duke University side. And so I work kind of ahead of mechanical engineering as well as running uh, a full-time clinical practice in neuro-oncology. Well, there's another thing that you, another hat that you have, and that is an ordained mm. Buddhist priest. And very curious here. Um, I have to say, when I think of you know, a minister or a rabbi or an imam, I think of that as 
well, their job, right? That's what they do day in and day out. They maybe give a sermon on a Saturday or Sunday. They have a staff meeting on a Monday. That's that's what they do. I can't think of too many, yeah. unless I'm wrong, rabbis who also resect brain tumors during the week. So very interesting. <laughs> um, tell us how this path started for you. Yeah. So I uh, initially began uh, heading down the road of investigating Zen and kind of Buddhism and how and having a resonance with that practice when I was in high school. Actually, about the time I was uh, a senior in high school and then going on to college, I started to I was reading a book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Piercic. And it was really influential for me in terms of thinking about kind of the direction of my own life. Uh, what is what is this crazy thing we call human beings and, and this life that we're living? And as I kind of delve further into that path, I found myself walking into the Zen Center in Los Angeles as a freshman in college uh, and plopping down onto a meditation cushion for 10 minutes of Zazen breathing meditation and uh, found that that was really the path that made a lot of sense for me. And so... I started practicing Zen when I was in Los Angeles, probably about almost going on 20 years ago now. And uh, the, my, that practice for me has sort of morphed and changed over time. I practiced there at, at the Zen Center for a period before I went to medical school in Boston. And then I practiced in Boston with uh, the Greater Boston Zen Center for oh, so over a decade now. Um, but really, the, my Zen practice sort of matured and changed and developed and, and morphed even as my own kind of clinical and academic pathway went forward as I went through medical school, went through residency. And um, the two really sort of interwove as I was uh, kind of proceeding on. And the uh, it's interesting to think about that as you know, the role of uh, what is a, you know, as a priest, as a full-time position I and as a sort of an independent thing a, a profession or a, an entity that is done during the day I, I look at the Zen practice is really a role for me that occurs at every moment as as much as it can it's it's when I'm brushing my teeth or when I'm walking to the car in the morning or when I'm playing with my kids or or taking out a brain tumor these are the the practice for me itself is sort of as with Zen itself is sort of what happens in every moment that is right now. And I think that's that's how it's sort of woven into what I've been doing. And uh, even in the day-to-day as I'm doing things that aren't necessarily sitting on a cushion and meditating. So is that a pretty standard way to think about that, that role? Or is your role more unique? I mean, it's uh, yeah. know, for those of us who have much to learn about this, and is that role typical that you serve? Right. And the I should say that that, uh, yeah, you're, it's a it's a very good question. The ordination part of that practice really didn't occur for me until about two years ago. So I've already been practicing Zen for about 17 years as a as a practitioner. Uh, and there came a time for me and my teacher um, as we were discussing kind of what how my practice might be able to better serve those around me and uh, that that taking on that role as an ordained Zen Buddhist priest might make some sense because it created, even if it was not completely known how it would exactly manifest, and that was totally okay, that it might actually provide an entryway into um, helping those around me to also approach the difficulties in the, and their own lives, particularly in the context of medicine. And I think that was one of the, the discussions that my, uh, my teacher is, Josh Bartok, who's a, um, the uh, abbot of the Greater Boston Zen Center, has been a Zen Roshi for forever. Uh, but 
with his guidance, I was sort of, we were sort of talking about what the role this, this Zen path has played in sort of my own approach to medical care and how I'm sort of approaching the suffering, old age, illness, death that, are, that is kind of interwoven within clinical practice and how in that context, there's actually a need within the community, both of practitioners, uh, both of the clin uh, clinicians, uh, as well as patients to have kind of an awareness and approach to dealing with these very human things that are popping up. And it made some sense as we were discussing that maybe this ordination route might, might, may or may not uh, provide a way to sort of create an opening to better be present and compassionate in those situations. And that was sort of the context in which we sort of kind of jumped two feet into it. Yeah. And I listened to you actually, your ordination um, speech is online um, at the Boston Zen center. Thanks. So I listened to that and you're very open about this. It, it, um, you refer to it as encounters with suffering, which is certainly something that's not unfamiliar to most of our listeners. I mean, this is a day-to-day -day reality of, of, you know, the calling of medicine. Um, mm. take, take us back to that day when you were ordained. And what, what, what is it that so many residents are lacking? I mean, you get so much training in so many areas, especially in subspecialty training, like neurosurgery, but there's so many things that are missing, and one of those is is your ability to deal with these daily encounters of suffering. Right, and I, I think the challenge that I ran into during my own clinical training is that as I walked in the front doors, even as an intern on my first day uh, as a surgical resident, um, I was not at all prepared to see the kind of death and destruction that comes inherent within just the practice of medical of medicine and sort of injuries and illness to the human body uh, and what that would actually sort of reflect back to me and and, and kind of echo around my own heart and mind uh, as I was running into it. And I found it really disorienting, scary. Uh, I found myself completely uh, underprepared to be able to meet that in a, in a compassionate way, to be able to help guide myself and families through these very difficult situations because it really wasn't something that even with the sort of um, patient doctor classes or mock scenarios or discussion groups or anything that can be kind of put together artificially in medical school or before that, they never quite get to the heart of the actual experience when you're actually in that that uh, uncomfortable little consult room in the emergency room at 3 a.m. telling an entire family that their grandmother has died from a hemorrhage in their brain. Um, nothing really kind of gets you ready for that. And I found myself completely under unprepared for it and really not uh, finding a lot of institution or guidance within the actual medical system or among my colleagues to help provide some guidance to it. It was a, um, it, in some ways it was sort of this unspoken kind of difficulty and everyone sort of wrestled with, with it in their own ways and manifested with their own stress responses, but no one was really turning toward the reality that there was an impact on uh, the individual clinician and provider when you're thrown into these situations and that through kind of not really approaching it, you actually close the door to compassion for the people that you're taking care of. Uh, and so my, what I, as I was stumbling and tripping my way through this in residency, I was also still practicing Zen as I, as I had for many years. And I was uh, seeing and I was sitting in the meditation cushion and watching what was coming up for me in terms of the anxiety, the fears, the um, the doubts, the, the terror around these, these experiences and being able to grapple with them in that meditation kind of vessel allowed me to sort of 
maybe open my heart just a little bit more to what I was seeing and be able to turn toward these issues of suffering and difficulty that my patients were experiencing. And I think through that opening really allowed me an opportunity to be more compassionate. Um, and it's not to say that I still don't struggle with that or that it isn't still part of my practice or that I still don't find myself pushing away those difficulties or turning, trying to turn away from the, the pain and the suffering. But I think the practice of meditation and Zen for me has allowed allowed it to be a little less scary and a little more of a uh, of an opening to kind of be with those things. Yeah, so but, that's, but Patrick, you came into um, to medical school. You came into training with some of this already in your system. I mean, you you clearly were very compassionate coming in. These this was something you were looking around and found that was lacking. Do you think that the tools and the and the the um, uh, disciplines that you've learned uh, in Zen are something that can be added later on to people who may not have that. You think of the classic surgeon who sort of like, I'm in the OR, I'm completely compartmentalized, I don't have time for compassion. Can that be taught? Yeah. Can, that be, um, can that be used as a tool to help people? Absolutely, it can. Yeah, and there's there's an interesting dichotomy there that's worth that you pointed out that's actually worth highlighting, I think, which is this compartmentalization and focus. And I, I think it's worth taking a moment to sort of reflect on that because there is actually a, uh, I found for myself at least that there was this dissonance between what I thought I should be as like a clinician or the this, the compassionate physician, the healing hands, the, this sort of like model kind of bedside practitioner and what was really happening in the practice of medicine. So there is, there is on one side, and, and I'll just highlight examples, there's, you know, there's once that one side where you're in the emergency room having a discussion with that devastated family from their intracranial hemorrhage. And in that moment, it, it, you, I have found myself in this position where it's no longer me, the white-coated physician, and them, the family sitting across the table. It is just human beings sitting there amidst the suffering of the, the reality of the kind of this human illness that's occurring. And it's, and it's a very open-hearted, broken, and painful, but very um, intimate moment. And then there's this other side of the spectrum where I'll be on call or be in the uh, be required to deal with acute neurosurgical issues where someone's dying from a hemorrhage, they need an external ventricular drain, they need to check their sodium, they need to get to the ICU, they're going to go to the OR, this is what we're going to do, boom, 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 data, 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 decision, go. And there's this, and there's that compartmentalized focus. Both of those things are equally important, and it's sort of part of the it's, it's the dynamic part of the practice that we're engaged in is sort of the sometimes our hearts more open, sometimes maybe less so, but this is sort of the balance that is normal in this practice. And that is something, that normality was not something I appreciated as I was stumbling through residency and struggling with, you know, how can one moment I can, you know, declare someone dead and, and really then just move on to the next patient and keep going, but almost feel nothing about it. And then this other moment feel like this intimate experience. This is sort of the dynamic living, breathing part, and this is something that I continue to explore in my own practice, but part of the meditation practice that you can then take up, even now, have, wherever it is within training, like it doesn't, doesn't really much matter, is the ability to sit down on the cushion and just be with the person that is arising in that moment, whether it's the open-hearted, compassionate person or whether it's the data, you know, process, 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 you know, decision, go. All of that is the same, it is the person that's just arising right here, and that's entirely enough. And part of that practice, you can gauge any time, but that's something that's been helpful for me, is you just sit down, and sitting down on the cushion creates that space to suddenly be with yourself and to see these things that are coming up for you, and that's really the gateway to be more present with the now. 
Well, we want to explore that, the nuts and bolts of meditation, how that actually works in your practice. Um, I think it might be helpful, but before I forget here, just take a step back. Sure. Just for all of us who don't know enough about Buddhism, try to take us through just a brief history. I mean, it's 2,500 years in the making, so it's a long one, but, <laughs> but give us an idea of, of where it started and what Buddhism looks like today, because it's, there's, it comes in different varieties, you know, depending where you are and, and how you approach it. But uh, just to help us all up to speed here on what, what it is we're talking about. Yeah, so it's, boy, yeah, summarizing <laughs> 3,000 years of, of tradition uh, in, in a quick breath. I, hmm. Probably the best way to sort of overview it would be to say that there, it started with someone sitting down and being with themselves and what it means to be human some thousand years ago in India. And from that spread just, just the act of sort of, of being with this humanness is really what started it. Looking no further than the tip of someone's nose as they sat down beneath a tree and that is where it started, and it spread over the course it, through various traditions, written and oral, and through many different practice forms, and um, and you know, through India, China, down through through Korea, Japan, through Vietnam, through through the entire sort of Asia Pacific, and then over to the to both Europe as well as to the uh, North America. Um, the, it, it has sort of gradually spread and morphed and taken on the flavors of different cultures and integrated into the various spaces throughout over thousands of years. Um, there's an, a deepening and continuous evolving tradition of Western Buddhism now, which they quote unquote, you know, the, uh, these, as these Buddhist traditions have sort of collided with Western culture and history and and bias and that they sort of an ongoing morphing entity and there's a number of different practice traditions and uh, within the US and manifesting in practice in small meditation groups or practice centers, temples, um, centers all through the US, Europe, South America, Central America, pretty much everywhere around the world at this point. Um, so, but all of it really coming, they, while there's many different kind of vehicles and manifestations of it, it's all coming down to sort of looking at this uh, thing that we call being human. And the particular path that you took is um, the Japanese Soto tradition. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, that's where I started. Yeah. So and, what, what, what's uh, unique about that pathway? Well, it's, there's a lot of different, it's a different flavor. It's different flavors of, of Buddhism. We, the, the particular kind of lineage and practice that I am engaged with has um there's a variety of different practice forms and vehicles for sort of manifesting the practice. There's also, there's straight up sitting meditation, which is sort of sitting on a cushion, breathing, doing sitting, what's called Zazen, uh, which is really the core of that practice. Um, and there's for us, uh, for this particular lineage, there's also elements where we're exploring things called koans, which are public quote unquote public cases or sort of, uh, encounters that have been recorded in history as ways, as gateways to better understand uh, what our life is about and, and what this whole thing called Zen is. Um, sometimes it takes the forms of temple practice, of uh, extended meditation periods, of sometimes it just takes the form of cutting carrots, uh, preparing a meal. Um, but the core element is for a lot of it, comes, always comes down to uh, some form of meditation. Interesting. 
Okay, so I think everyone listening, some have tried this, some do it on a regular basis and, and see a lot of uh, you know benefits and value from it. Some are resistant to the idea. Um, some think it's it's a little out there, um, but hopefully listening to a neurosurgeon talk about this it brings it brings a, a, certainly a different lens to this. Um, let's just start with the beginning. Meditation. What is it that, what's your goal when you're starting out a meditative practice? And, you know, if, I don't know if an analogy is helpful here, but if you're, you know, starting a workout routine and you're trying to train for a marathon, there's certain steps, there's certain things that you might see, like, you know, you're getting your mile time down or something. But what, what is going on in our mind all the time that we're trying to deal with? And what are, what is your initial ex- expectation when you start this path? You know, it, it becomes different for each person uh, what comes up. The basic mechanics of zazen are, are fairly straightforward in that you're sitting on a cushion, maintaining a certain posture, uh, mostly just to kind of be mindful of where your body is at in space and, and kind of settling into this space in which you're going to be watching your breathing and watching just what's coming up in our own minds. And the thing is, is that's about where the, the, where you start. And everybody who sits down has a very different thing or thought or feeling or, uh, that, that can come up in that next moment right after that. And that's where the practice becomes divergent for people. The hardest part probably is actually just sitting there even for a few moments, uh, and really being with, what's actually coming up in that moment because we're so used to running around to this next thing flipping through the phone to pull up the facebook to take the next call to look at my next email to check my watch to to everything else that comes up during the day that it's sometimes hard i find it even now very difficult sometimes just to sit down and take this and create the space in which just to be with what's coming up in our own mind and that can sometimes be the hardest Part of this and like so you know no one's I would I would say no one would be expected to sit down on the meditation cushion and meditate for an hour straight the first time they're sitting down that would be just unreasonable even I found that in the very first time someone sits on the meditation cushion 10 minutes can seem like a hundred years <laughs> um, and and so that's and and if if you sit down and you start with one minute it's entirely enough and it's done an incredible amount of work, even in that one minute, just to see what comes up for you in that very one minute. So I think that's, it, it's like anything else in that it does, it's challenging to sort of dig into something new and it's hard to sort of focus with it. And, um, and it's also okay to fail. Uh, the beautiful thing with meditation is that there is, it, there really is no goal if you dig down deep hard enough. We all come to the meditation cushion with thinking that we need to achieve something, particularly type A personalities that are wandering around medicine, including myself. Um, we all think that we're gonna have some goal, we're gonna achieve something, we're gonna reach that next level or you know, really get calm or just hit that Zen moment. It, all of that is nonsense. Um, and is that's that how you felt bit. initially? I mean, what, what were oh, the yeah. frustrations oh, yeah. you had to overcome? Yeah, and, it, and that's a very normal, too. And, and the thing is, is that no one is going to sit down on a meditation, including myself, if there wasn't some thought that, you know what, there's something I'm trying to do here, that there is some direction I'm trying to take this in the most basic sense or some goal or something to achieve. I want to be more calm. I want to be more uh, uh, a, a more focused person. I want to feel less stress. So all of those things are actually very important realities in our life and things that come up normally. And they are arrows that guide us to meditation and just to get us to the cushion and to be with it. And 
over time, those things can soften in their strength in which they direct us to meditation. Uh, and the, the reasons we're sitting there change. But for me, that was definitely the part of it. I would say, you know, I just I just don't understand what this what's going on. What, like, the, why is this life the way it is? Like, what what is this whole thing of being human? And just struggling with that while sitting on the meditation cushion was a pra my practice for many years. Um, and that's and I think that's part of it. And some may come to it just because they want to they want to get a few moments of calm between the kids and getting home to work and uh, trying to get away from the stress of the day and just need a few minutes to sort of breathe. And that is also totally normal. Um, everyone's just a little bit different, but it's hard regardless, because the, the bottom line is it's actually hard to be a human being and it's hard to actually f really face the the tumultuous anxieties, challenges, pains, excitements that come up for us on a day-to-day -day basis and that are entirely human and to really just sit with them for a while is actually really challenging. So, so Patrick, how does um, that level of, of um, focus compare and contrast with the amount of concentration it takes to, say, do an endoscopic um, uh, brain surgery? I mean, there, there is that kind of focus, you, you know, time passes and you don't even realize it's passing when you're, when you're, when you're concentrating that hard in the OR, but it's clearly a different type of, of process. Yeah, it definitely is. I actually find it easier to do an endoscopic brain surgery than it would be to sit and meditate for that long. Okay. Um, because it's, the thing is, is I find it actually very hard at times to sit and really watch the thoughts and feelings and take the, the the tumbling tumultuous ride of this thought and this thought and this thought and this thought and to see you know, that's actually a can, can be a very uh, a difficult experience more than I think when I have sort of an endoscopic or I'm doing some sort of cranial surgery I've sort of a hundred percent focus there's a there's a sort of mechanical problem solving laser-like focus down on a single problem that can that uh, draws all my attention. It can do so for hours. It's almost as if it's a nice distraction from the continuous train of thought that would otherwise be churning around in my head if I didn't have something to focus my energy towards. Um, so I, I think both of them sort of take in, interplay in my life. So it's hard to say if one, one is inevitably affected the other. Um, but I, I actually find that meditation for long times is, is probably more difficult. Interesting. Well, so for someone who's tried this, uh, I, I've tried it in different ways. I've tried group meditation. I've tried the um, the app on my phone. Mm. I'm really curious. Have you ever done any of these multi-day or week-long retreats? Yeah, I have many of them, actually. Um, tell me about that because yeah. that's something I haven't done, but I've got to imagine there's something that you get out of that that you're not going to get doing five or ten minutes on an app on your phone. Um, yeah. And there's different, they have different flavors for sure. And so when we're doing what's called a session or a, or a retreat um, where we're meditating quite a, from basically sun up to sundown uh, for multiple days at a time in silence, um, that that is, it, it actually it's, has its own obvious unique challenges and it is difficult unto itself. But one of the things that I found is different from that than, say, trying to squeeze in that 10 minutes early in the morning before the kids are up and before we're going to get people to school and I've got to go to work and everything's kind of going crazy is that sort of dedicated space to actually sit down and meditate is so precious in that it, it creates a vehicle of kind of, I guess, 
isolation or sort of a vessel in, in which to really engage with the practice without the distractions that normally can draw us um, into all sorts of directions. And so it's a kind of a humbling crucible in which you get to be in this space of just being with the practice and just seeing how it affects you and, and to struggle with it and to fly with it and to fail with it and just creates this sort of isolated space of retreat. It, that has its own particular advantages or sort of particular like effects. But just as but even this 10 minutes early in the morning or the one minute while you're sitting in the parking lot before you go in the, into work, um, that too can be really important in just sort of a moment of kind of re being with like what's going on here now. So I think both of them have their own purposes. I think the part of this is that there's uh, there are many different forms. You have the apps on the phone. You have insight meditation components. You have sort of various forms of Buddhism and vehicles. And what really these things are, and I think down to it, is they're they're really forms and um, to help you to sort of be right here with you. And whether or not it's in an extended meditation period or 10 minutes sitting on a cushion, all of those things are important and do great work. It just is uh, just the way it, it's just a doorways and no one of them is more important than the other. one. So what was the longest retreat you've done? Uh, seven days. Gosh. And that was a silent retreat. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. take us through a day of that. I mean, yeah. you talk about how hard it is and I know, you know, to even spend 10 minutes meditating. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard. But to, to do yeah. that for seven days in silence and not even not even have anybody guiding you through it. I mean, how did that how did that work? Well, I will say that there is a lot of guidance in those meditation retreats. So there's a lot of very skilled and um, caring and careful teachers who have a lot of experience down that road who help guide and direct those. And so they can so talk to all... you, but you can't talk to them. Is that it? We, you do for our for our forms. We do we do have opportunities for private practice interviews with the teachers where we are talking to them. It's not completely silent, but it's sort of silent among the practitioners. Sort of that within that space, you're not compelled to engage in, the, in exactly in the, the same social forms or social implications or demands we might otherwise. It gives an opportunity to be aware of what those are. Um, but the, that space, it's just more of creating a space in which you can really spend a protracted amount of time practicing those forms, be them walking meditation or sitting meditation or exploring a koan with one of the teachers or, um, or even practicing sweeping the, the, the walkway or making the soup. Um, there are things that these tasks that sort of get boiled down to some very basic and very focused activity where you really engage with what it means to do those activities right now without having to engage in anything else. And part of the structure is you do have some guidance from many years of, of tradition and forms that have been put into these retreats. They are created in such a way as to guide, the rules are sort of set and, and some can seem somewhat alien at times, but they're really all meant to be able to support your practice and engaging in it. So when the bells ring to indicate particular times, when when you're supposed to bow, when you're not supposed to bow, when how eating practice is performed, it seems like it's very regimented and structured, but that structure is actually meant to free you from the need to try to problem solve all that and to really dive into just the practice of being with you right there. So that's that's more a retreat practice. So was there a point maybe two or three days in that you felt different about it? Were there benchmarks yeah. throughout that week? I mean, I, I'm trying to, I don't have anything yeah. else to really compare it to. So I'm trying to imagine what it was I, like in your shoes. 
I think every one of those is a little bit different. I find about two or three days into it, I'm desperate to get out. <laughs> um, like, I think my my knees and my back are just killing me. And then then there's and it, everything, it sort of morphs and changes. It, it has, and every retreat's just a little bit different because it kind of comes with whatever we're taking in at the time, whatever argument or anxieties or, or frustrations that I had in, before I walked in or whatever like going on in life kind of can flavor the direction of things. But I generally find that I started getting pretty sore after two or three days. After about four, about three, end of three or four, you start to get into a routine and kind of really settle into the form. And actually, I find it to get much easier after those, after a couple of days. And then by the end, there's this sort of very, I, I find it always a bit magical at the end of these uh, these retreats. When it's done, I'm actually extremely grateful for the experience, even though there are points where in it, when I just wanted to run screaming. Um, but it's, and so each one, and all of that is kind of comes and goes, and that's part of it too. It's sort of sitting with that, that feeling like, oh, I want to run screaming, or oh yeah, I'm really getting this, or uh, or man, I don't get this at all. Um, all of those things are part of it. Uh, it just It's sort of the, the experience of being in that sort of vessel and seeing what comes up. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really, it's, it's, I would always, it's always hard to just sort of, some people just dive right into that. I'm like, I'm, they never meditated before. I'm just going to do a seven-day retreat and they jump right in it. They do just as fine as the people who and have this, probably the same struggles as the people who have been doing it for years. Um, and mm. it's, it's a different, you know, different strategies for people where were you uh, in your career when you did that seven day retreat? Well, I've done several of them, like kind of all throughout, like under when I was even through an undergraduate medical school, when I even in uh, more most recently when I was yeah junior attending. So I just you know block off that time. I'm I'm that doesn't come in sort of like I can't just sort of drop everything and be free. I, I try to which I I do for those retreats, but it uh, it comes at the cost of my family, my wife, and my kids who's who, you know, they know that I'm going to be away. And so it's, it's really, at, I'm really grateful for their support and like the, and the support of my office, my department, the hospital. There's people that, uh, that it's not just something you do alone. It takes a huge community, people supporting you in a variety of different ways. And I'm always grateful for that space, but I've done it even after being an attendant. Wondering um, from a clinical standpoint, do you um, try to share the meditative techniques with either your your patients or your team in any way? So I, I have kind of two approaches to that. Um, I for the residents, re- remembering my experience of not having really much guidance or direction, or having a even just a space in which to sort of approach the difficult things that I that, that come up in the course of clinical practice. I created a um, just a really a space on uh, once a month where we sort of it's open to the residents to come whoever's interested it's not required and and they call it uh, initially I called that this that uh, the sort of kind of hour long block that I have with them encountering suffering it sort of got morphed into this more uh, wellness discussion I guess I don't know it has a variety of titles but basically it's just I created a, a space in which the residents can come and just talk about the stuff that's coming up for them and a lot of it has to do with like um, deaths that they've seen or been involved with in terms of patients, difficult social or medical situations, how their the struggles that they have in balancing their clinical, this sort of clinical obligations and the rigors of residency with balancing family life, priorities outside the hospital, maintaining interpersonal relationships and the struggles that come up because of it. It's kind of an opportunity just to explore that with each other and uh, normalize really any that which is you know everyone sort of struggles with but i found for my that really wasn't given a lot of voice before so there's sort of that more agnostic 
um, kind of environment in which to sort of, where I just sort of function as a, a moderator. Uh, and then on the other side is much more kind of Zen based, which is that I, I have a weekly uh, Zen meditation group and Zen liturgical service that I hold uh, in the one of the chapels here at the hospital uh, once a week. So for people who want to come and meditate or learn those sort of Zen forms and experience that meditation kind of effect directly uh, within the context of the Zen practice. So I kind of have two opportunities because it's, you know, people have different comfort levels, different interests in exploring you know, Zen and Zen Buddhism versus also the, what I think is really the, uh, uh, the core importance, which is how do you, how do we as clinicians approach suffering and right. being a human for ourselves? And so I try to create space for both of that. Have you found that um, people have been receptive to this? Have, have your residents chosen to come to the liturgical uh, portion as well as the open forum? There have been a few, and and that's and, and that's it's wonderful when they do, and it's also not necessary at all. And mm -hmm. I and I intentionally try to keep it as neutral and low key as possible because that has to be someone's you know decision for themselves that it makes sense for them or they want to explore that, uh, but. For the, the opportunities for that wellness space in which people come to explore their kind of the difficulties, I've had almost everyone who's available shows up every time, um, which I've been really humbled by. Yeah, well, I certainly would have for sure. I wish that was available when I was in training. Um, could use it now. Um, that, but leads me to another question. Do you think that there's a way uh, or, or a need to incorporate this kind of thing into the curricula at medical schools? I think this is the challenge that we're running into. Well, these discussions are ongoing, I think, and floating around. There's always, there's a huge, there's a number of different initiatives that I sort of see all floating around in terms of stress reduction, reducing burnout, um, even like, um, I don't know, like kind of guided meditation. And it, there's, there's a variety of different ways that people try to integrate this, both, I think, both in the hospital and I see it also in the medical school side. Um, I don't. I don't know if sort of like I think creating an obvious opportunity for people to engage if they're if they're interested is the best way. I don't know if mandating these things ever goes well. Um, I don't know if it's just my personality, but the minute it got sort of written down in the curriculum, I think my interest in it became less. Yeah. Um, and I I think the just because it felt a little prescribed and I would prefer to have sort of created or at least created obvious opportunities to maybe engage with it if it felt comfortable or right for that particular right. people. Yeah. When I was in medical school, they, uh, that was sort of the start of the interest in medical ethics. Mm. And so they started to have medical ethics courses for the students. It was a sort of add on in between semesters. And um, we had a book and we'd have discussions, but the book, if you, if you open the back, had answers. And I actually questioned the ethicist. What, why are there answers at the end of an ethics book? And said, oh, well, we need the framework for discussion. So I agree. That I think the problem is if they try to put it as a curriculum, they lose some of the spontaneity and the personal focus right. of it. Well, um, it, part of the thing that I've seen with these movements is sort of stress reduction directed meditation kind of work is that it does have a very set goal. And I, I always, and I kind of, um, that's, it just come from a 
my perspective, it's a little bit hard to do that. They have a very set goal of sort of reducing stress and reducing burnout, which I think is a noble intent unto itself. I do worry at times that there is a sort of other aspect of that uh, kind of mandate in that it's trying to reduce stress to maintain the the uh, efficiency and of the hospital to maintain its bottom line and to prevent you know personnel loss and the costs associated with hiring recruitment and retaining and so I, I I worry that underneath that intention there is a uh, there is a more kind of capitalistic um, yeah. goal. sounds like a metric fixation to me Keith just like our last episode. I know <laughs> I, I was gonna say that's kind of cynical for someone with a with Zen background I'm just it, saying <laughs> it is well and that's why I think it's most important to keep it open because yeah, right. in that way not not for if it feels a little more um, the, the opportunity to sort of explore this it, for the individual is, is more an open decision rather than one with a clear sort of corporate intent. Right. Well, you are a scientist. I mean, do you think there's room for, I mean, there has been a, a body of research on this, but, mm-hmm. it, you know, especially for those in our audience who are a little more skeptical and they want, yeah. they want to see, you know, show me where it is in PubMed. I mean, yeah. is there room for that? And if you were doing a study, what would you know? How would you frame that? Uh, those questions and what would you look at? Yeah, I think so. Is there room for those studies? Absolutely. I think with anything, it's a, it's an investigation. And, you know, this, the magnifying glass of science can be applied to anything, and uh, I think that's important. And those questions, you know, looking at it with people have looked at that from eyes of a brain mapping, monitoring. They've done it from people meditating, kind of see these changes over time, looking at different wave waveforms. Those are all really important sort of aspects of understanding brain physiology and, and how these things can and brain adaptability and, and recovery and change. And this is all part of important aspects of neuroscience. Um, I think there is a, there is also a distinction there where uh, that is a, it's fascinating to sort of sit and read a pile of paper at your desk, but then the question is, are, how are you doing in that moment? Because you are still a human being with the brain walking around. And is your experience of your own life at that moment been improved by that? And um, that's where the difference between sort of scientific inquiry into the neurophysiologic basis meditation takes a step away from the experience of being a human being meditating. Um, And both things I think are important. Um, I and I encourage people to explore it because I, I think, but I and I think there are a lot of sort of there's some there's data out there to suggest the practical aspects of meditating just based on the data. I think if we were, I, I guess, at a hospital level, you you would have to structure studies and such, and they probably have, and I'm just not familiar with them. Is you know, take a group of people have a structured meditation regimen, have some sort of monitoring, some sort of feedback month weekly. Uh, kind of gatherings to make sure that you know we're doing oh we're going to do 10 minutes of meditation every single day for a six-month period and then do pre and post surveys or uh, on like satisfaction happiness or focus some sort of feelings of compassion you create a sort of subjective array of pan- a panel of questions and sort of try to objective objectively determine what sort of changes in someone's mentation or personality or feelings would occur over the course of this i think you can structure these studies i don't know how useful some they may be useful to sort of kind of provide some metrics to it but i think ultimately it comes down to the experience of actually doing it and if it makes sense for that person because the reality is that, that meditation may make sense for one person but it may be prayer for another person maybe taking a walk through the park for another maybe playing with the dogs for you know for another one you, you never know um but 
yoga or something yeah. else. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's think about somebody who, not the burned out physician that we always hear about in the news, but just somebody who feels that, you know, they're, they got things pretty, going pretty well. They're happy in their career. They're happy in their practice. They are happy on the home front. What, what kind of benefit would you, would you express to that person, you know, when they say, well, I don't have anything missing and I'm not that stressed out, you know, what is it that they could still benefit from by, by trying this practice? Yeah. I, I think even in those moments, like that isn't a one, that is, sounds like a great state for things to be in. I would guess that at some point things aren't as exciting, aren't as great. And that, you know, or that there are, they still, we all, I think, experience fears, anxieties, happiness, sadness, all, like the whole swath of, swath of human experience. I think even in that scenario, just sitting down and sitting on the cushion just to see what is coming up in that moment. And it very well may be, man, things are going really well. Everyone's doing, everyone's healthy, everyone's happy. Things are going great, work's going great. Hey, I feel, feel real good. And that may be that experience that's coming up now. And just to see what that is like, both physically and sort of as a thought process. And as the, the trick with the human thought is, is that everything changes. Um, and that, as much as that is the state of right now, it may not be so much the state the next moment. And that's just part of being a human is that these things change. And the meditation part of it lets us kind of, uh, has, for me at least, my experience has been seeing that change. And in this, when that next state comes, being with that too, and seeing what that feels like and, and how that exists. And then the next thing. And so I think it's a kind of an opportunity to really dig into the, the, all those little mind moments that are coming up for us minute after minute, even if they're happy, if they're sad or whatever they are, it's just an opportunity to really, I think, better be with who we are as humans. Interesting. And how about your patients, Patrick? Uh, I'm sure, you know, it's not hard for them to find out that uh, you have, you know, this background. It's, it's on Duke's website. It's out there. Do any of your patients bring this up with you? Are they curious yeah. about it? Yeah, I, I think it's a mixed bag. Some people, I, I think, just don't, they don't really go on the internet there and see it. Some, some have done a lot of investigating and, and don't, and know about it, but don't really ask. And some people specifically will talk to me about the, my Zen practice. And, and I've had several patients that have come to me specifically because of it, actually, that they themselves are Buddhist or they have a meditation practice that's very important to them, that they were really looking for uh, someone who could relate on that level as well. They felt like it provided an opportunity to, I think, to have a more uh, intimate sort of patient-doctor relationship where they could have a level of communication that maybe they weren't finding with other physicians. Um, so it's been kind of a, a mix. And uh, I... I I just sort of take it as it comes, um, and have, and sort of enjoy having the opportunity to talk, uh, talk Buddhism with patients, if that's what makes sense to them. And I'm also happy to just talk with them about how they're feeling and what's going on for them that day. Yeah, sure. This one, I don't, I don't know if you'll have any thoughts on this. I was just curious. We, we recently did an episode on psychedelics and mm. this was with, uh, David Nichols, who's a pharmacolo neuropharmacologist. He's actually just down mm. the road from you at UNC. And yeah. he was he did research on this all the way through the 70s and 80s when research was banned everywhere else. But he had an FDA license at Purdue. And this has actually become one of our most popular uh, episodes. It's amazing. But um, curious, just if you, you know, if you have any thoughts on this, I mean, you're, uh, you know, it's still illegal. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not asking you to 
talk about any uh, empirical research you've done on it, but it it seems, and based off of real research, that some of the benefits, for example, that you get from meditation, you might Mm. be able to get there a little faster this way or in a different way, but maybe not. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, you know, and I, I'm not familiar with that work um, enough to be able to say. I think that the the thing is, is it's interesting sitting at the interface between the ideas of you you have neuropharmacology, you have neurophysiologic functioning of like the organic firing brain and, and not just the brain, but how it's sort of interconnecting with everything in your body. It's interfacing with all of the sensors and stretch receptors and muscles and tendons and the beating of the heart and the, the, flowing, you know, the passage of fluids, all of that is sort of integrating into the sort of experience of being a human. And it's not surprising at all that sort of medications that are going to alter that neurophysiologic function are also going to alter the way in which we sort of perceive the world around us or like reality or space and time and like perceptions. And I think both of these sort of, we sort of are dancing around the same idea of, of how do you sort of explore what it is to be a human being and in all of its kind of messy, exciting, difficult complexities and whether or not that's done sitting on a cushion meditating, whether that's through the effects of medications or otherwise. I mean, and even just changes that we see, say, when we get a fever and our alterations in the way we perceive reality when we have a high temp, um, there's many ways in which we sort of bounce across this idea of like how can the alter, how can we alter the way we perceive or how is our perception of reality altered just by the conditions that are occurring around us and what's interesting i think is that it actually points down to really that it, it, it's all the arrows pointing toward what is this self to begin with where is this fixed person where is this patrick that i can put my say i can point to and say ah that's patrick and he's going to be unchanging and that's where he is all the time uh, it may be that that's not so solid. Because I was going to ask you exactly where in the brain Patrick is. I mean, you look at yeah. it every day, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the thing about it is like, where is that fixed person? That's a, it's a phenomenal question to sit with. Where Where is that fixed person that, that I can rely on so much to be unchanged? And, and, and why is it the psychedelic medications, the meditation, the, the getting a fever, the becoming ill, the, to all of these things that sort of alter that, that sort of fixed idea of who we think we are, um, that's a very interesting signpost because it's, it, it, for me, that experience in particularly in Zen has been exploring that concept of where is that fixed, fixed Patrick? And maybe that Patrick is not so fixed as maybe I once thought. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I, I, and you've got to have these thoughts sometimes during surgery. I mean, you're looking at it right in front of you. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where it all happens, but it's, there's so, so much we don't know. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, to wrap it up here, let's take, uh, you know, one of our listeners who may have given this a try at some point, just didn't yeah. get anywhere with it. Um, and, and they're not, maybe, you know, maybe they're not at an academic institution where they could find a, uh, a workshop or meetup group, but they want to, yeah. they're like, okay, you know, it seems to have benefited Patrick here. Maybe, maybe I'll give it a shot again. Where would you point them? And this can, excuse me, can include everything. We'll put it up in the show notes, but books, resources yeah. online, apps. I mean, what, what, what yeah. where should they start? Well, there's a number of, of instructions. I would go to, you know, YouTube has everything these days, which is wonderful. But there, there's a number of instructions online, particularly around, if you're looking to start meditating, I would look at uh, instructions on YouTube about Zazen. It's Z-A-Z-E-N. And there's a number of YouTube videos done by very 
uh, very kind, compassionate, and very experienced uh, Zen teachers on how to meditate. And it's just simple. It's very simple, basic instruction about how to sit and actually the forms of meditation and, and, and kind of in, uh, beginning steps of counting your breaths. And I would, I would just start there. And that often, that will get you very close. If you're looking for a book, one book that I always recommend to sort of new students that are coming to our sitting group is uh, there's a book called Zen Meditation in Plain English. Um, it's by uh, da, uh, John Daishin uh, Books Bazin. Um, and I can give you that information later. Um, sure. But it's a, it's a small book. It has a particular forms and describes it. This, this is um, originally written by uh, someone who was at the Zen Center of Los Angeles, and so it has a particular flavor. Uh, but it's a very good basic instruction for those who can respond more directly with kind of books. But uh, YouTube's a great place to start. Excellent. We'll get all that up in the show notes. So um, anybody who's driving right now, don't, don't pull over to write it down. We'll have it up for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, Patrick, uh, one other question that occurred to me. I'm just curious. Um, obviously takes time to do the ordination, to do the discipline, and to get to the point where you were ordained. How did you find the time to do that and be a neurosurgeon at the same time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it was really hard, and I think it came at the price of, uh, it, well, and my, the only reason I could do any of this is because my wife is amazing, um, and she uh, just kind of is, can somehow magically make things come together and helps me balance schedule and takes on the big hit of, you know, we have, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old at home. And so it's, uh, you know, an incredible amount of, of work uh, to be doing that alone uh, while I'm sort of out and about. And she's been an incredible supporter and I couldn't have done any of this without her. Um, so it's really only by the, by, by her grace that I was able to do any of this. Um, but it, part of it is I just carve out what time when I can for the practice. I mean, I can't meditate hours and hours every day because I've got to run a full clinical practice and a lab and everything else is you know crazy busy with life and family and everything. So I just do what I can when I can in the amount I can. And that's entirely enough. Um, it'd be at like three minutes of meditation in the morning, or maybe if I can squeeze it out more and some days I don't get to it. Um, and that's just the, the realities of life. Does she do any with you, or uh, does she have a meditative practice? She that hasn't really been a form that has been resonated with her. She actually likes yoga a lot more. Sure. So she does. She's done a lot of yoga. So does my wife. Yeah, I've tried it with her, but uh, struggled there too. <laughs> well, my wife's, my wife's training to be a yoga instructor right now, and so I'm looking forward to try, try to figure it out because I've never. I've always wanted to dive into it, but I never. I, but now I have maybe some in-home instruction. Yeah, yeah. Good for her. That's great. Patrick, thanks for coming on. Uh, um, that was everything I hoped for. I, I knew this was going to be a fascinating discussion, and it really was. Um, thanks for carving out some time from your busy schedule here. This is just, just a great conversation. It's really a pleasure. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.